Welcome to True North. Stories from Northwest Denver. We're your co-hostesses, Jennifer Wolf and Robin Hoke. Hello. I am so excited to bring you some special content today. This is Jennifer Wolf. Robin Hoke is with us in spirit, living her best life. But I am taking the reins today to share with you what I've been up to, where I've been, what I've learned, who I've met. We are diverging from our usual format of stories from Northwest Denver and connecting to another subject near and dear to my heart. And hopefully, whether you're from the North Side or beyond, you'll listen and learn about a people often overlooked and misrepresented in popular culture. In fact, this is being recorded on the heels of the incident with the boys from Covington Catholic High School, and I can't help but wonder if some of this information that is being shared with you today were shared with students such as these young men, if they might have reacted in a different way. I am so fortunate to do what I do. I've been with the Native American Student Support Program with Denver Public Schools for two years now, and I have an amazing boss who's always up for whatever kooky idea I have, like recording my students for a podcast, or um, I have really great colleagues from in other schools that we are always bouncing ideas off each other. But I feel particularly thankful for my parents. My mom has been just a phone call away if I need support, like my son's kindergarten class. She came in and talked um, to them about Thanksgiving. My dad just came into North High School. The US history students are learning about policies and events affecting Native Americans, but they aren't hearing from Native Americans. So he came and gave the Native perspective from a lot of these uh, things that they're learning about in class. So I was really fortunate to have him. I put him in his own episode. <laughs> Uh, bear with me. The sound, I didn't think about recording him until the last second, and so I just stuck my phone in front of the microphone. The second part is with my students. So please listen to both episodes because um, my students are really open and honest, and they have a lot to share with you. So thank you for tuning in. And with that, I am introducing my dad, Rick Williams, who was a um, an instructor in the American Indian Graduate Studies graduate program at the University of Denver, and also the executive director of the American Indian College Fund. So, here he is. Wahota imajapi patoko mahasa na mahasa imajapi Rick Williams. I just told you my name, right? In, in, in um, English, my name is Rick Williams. In Lakota, my name is Tatanko Huhaska, which means a long-legged bull buffalo. It was my grandfather's name. It was given to me by my grandmother. Um, so I think that, you know, um, when we talk, we greet people with names, and we greet, greet with relatives first, and then with, with names, and then we have that 
you know, a, 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 a good interaction. One of the things that um, I that I know about Indian people are, and this is true about almost every nation I've been to, is the number one law was respect. And I really like the way you guys are behaving today because you're behaving with respect. You're honoring me by following our good way of respect, to respect each other, to respect opinions, to understand and see things that are different. You know, I'll give you an example of what happened, and this is why you know, it's important to understand that people are different. So when the black robes first came among the Lakota people, who knows what a black robe is? Missionary, priest, they wore black robes, so we called them black robes. Some people called them crows. When they came among our people, the very first time, they asked our men, not the women, but they asked our men to come down and talk to them. And this priest got up and he told them, he told them a story. He said, a long time ago, God, sent his son to the earth because the people were being bad. And this, this man who came to the earth told us how to be good people. And a lot of people wouldn't listen. And they ended up killing him. And when he went back to his father, they said, you know, we needed to learn from that. And so every Sunday, as part of this ceremony of church, um, they give you that communion, that little wafer. You take any, any Catholics in here? A couple. Okay, so they gave you this wafer. They called it communion. But you know what else he said? He said that represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Oh man, I are you horrified? They said, came back and they told the people, said, hey, stay away from don't ever let those people come amongst us. They're cannibals. They're God sent them their son and they eat, they eat. And they pretend like they're eating every Sunday. Don't go around them. That's a different perspective, right? Because we didn't know. We didn't know what they were talking about. It's just like when they came amongst us and they said, hey, look at them. They're dancing the sun dance. We don't dance the sun dance. Not, no, it's because they didn't understand who we were. They didn't understand our ways. They didn't understand what we were praying for and how we were praying. And part of our prayers, we stand there and we look up at the sun when we pray to the Creator, not to the sun. Sun didn't have any, you know, any status with us at all. But they, you know, they would say that we worship the sun god. Well, no, we didn't. But because they didn't understand who we were. They misinterpreted it. And they, you know, they said we worship the sun. Again, that's another perspective. And so when you have a different, a different perspective and you don't necessarily know everything um, about a people, um, one of the things they used to do is they used to call Indian people lazy. And lazy pesky redskins, you see that on TV, right? Like Westerns. You lazy pesky redskins. Well, you know what? We weren't lazy. But because in the eyes of the people who were coming here, they didn't know who we were or what we were doing. They would call us lazy. 
And, and so you would see a bunch of men sitting around talking, and they weren't necessarily doing anything, but they were considered lazy, despite the fact that they're developing a strategy on how to cure illness, or what the, what the next plan is going to be for, uh, if they're going to go out and steal horses, they're planning something, they're always talking, they're learning, they're listening, and that's what these group of good white people looked at it and said they were lazy. But we look at it and, and they're doing strategic planning, they're, you know, they're devising ways for the weaponry. They're doing all of these things. It's, it's understanding how to live in the environment, how to understand the track an animal, all this stuff. You all you have to know this stuff. Um, so the, the, the difference in perspectives is important. And I want to point that out. And I coined a term called the cognitive alien perspective. Cognitive, what does that mean? Anybody know about cognition? In your brain, how you think, how you think, and people think differently. People see the world differently through your cognitive. How you see things, what you know, and so when you when you are talking about somebody, you're coming from your perspective. It's your cognition, but you're talking about somebody else. It's alien. It's your perspective. So when they were calling us hostile, savages, lazy. That's not who we were. We weren't lazy. We weren't savages. We weren't hostile. But because the perspective of the person that was writing the history at that time, that was their perspective of us. That's not who we were. We were being attacked by invaders that were stealing our land and killing our women and children. There was a swarm of people that were coming across here that were constantly stealing our land. We were defending our land. We were patriots of our land. Our military were heroes because they were fighting this attack up, this theft of our land. Now that's a different, that's not a perspective you hear, huh? You never heard anybody ever call an American Indian a patriot, a defender of their land. You don't read it in the books like that. That's, that's part of the problem when you read this stuff. You've got to be able to think critically. Was this what was really happening? Is this really what was happening out here? Were these Indian people really that savage? Were they that hostile? Or were we doing something to them to cause them to be that way? You know, in the Cheyenne way, you, could, you can't commit a murder. If you commit a murder, you get ostracized in the tribe. They'll throw you away. You have to go out and live by yourself. And no, with no support. Because it was against our law to do that. We had a very difficult time when people would come amongst us and they would murder our people. We didn't understand that. And we didn't understand why they never got punished. Um, I'm going to tell a story. And I'm going to probably have to shorten it a little bit because my introduction took a little bit longer today. Listen. Great grandmother 
Ida Wyland is her name, was born in 1869. We don't know where she was born because Indian people weren't on reservations then. She was the last of the free people in America. And people would say, well, us Americans, we're free. No, I'm, th I'm talking about real freedom. The, the, the ability to wander and live in an environment without... There were sanctions, there were some things, but freedom was important. Freedom was our number one, one of our most important things about our people is freedom. We love freedom, we love our freedom. As a little girl, she had a great experience of experiencing being at the battle of the little big one where Custer was killed. She saw Custer get killed. She told the story. But before they would tell any of these stories, they'd always say, don't tell nobody. Don't say nothing. Because we could get into trouble. Even when I was a little boy, there was still a fear that somebody was going to come do something to our people for having killed Custer. She saw it happen. She saw exactly how it happened. And I think one of the things that's, that's important um, to understand in this process was the Cheyenne people who told the story knew who Custer was because he'd been killing people in Oklahoma. Cheyenne people and an old man put his pipe out on his boot and said, don't ever come amongst us again or we're going to kill you. And they did. And they mutilated his body. Despite what you're going to read in all these historical documents, they mutilated his body. The women first and then the men. They stopped owls. It's like these pokers and these ears. And said, you didn't listen to us. You didn't listen to us when we told you not to come amongst us and hurt our people. They scalped you. They cut his heart out. Yet today, you're not going to read about that in the history books. Because his wife, Libby, Libby was a journalist, and she made it clear to the military from the very top generals down, my husband was a hero. My husband was worshipped by these people. They would never do anything to him like that. It was a lie. It was an absolute lie. But because of her power and her presence, they said, you never got you never got never, They didn't touch you. They worshipped his body. They worshipped him. That's nonsense. That never happened in life. Not long after that, our people suffered tremendously because of that victory at Little Bighorn. People tried to escape the military constantly from that point on. And eventually, in 1877, our families had to be surrendered at Fort Robinson, Nebraska. The Cheyennes came in with crazy horse because they had nothing left after a battle up in Wall um, Wyoming. Um, it was at the big hole and they lost all their winter provisions so they had to go and find a way to survive so they went to Crazy Horse. But Crazy Horse was pressured too because he didn't, they were pushing him and they did in battle after battle and didn't have the reserves to, to survive the winter. So in the spring, early in the spring, they surrendered at Fort Robinson and 
the Cheyennes um, were told when they surrendered, so let's just pretend we're all Cheyennes in here. You guys, you guys have just surrendered, um, kind of having a hard time. I'll tell you a little story, what my story. So you're coming in, and um, this guy here, this, no, this guy right here, he, he comes in and he says, this this guy right here. He says, what's your name? And he says, knucklehead. And so the guy writes it down. And then he goes over here and says, what's your name? Two-headed monster. But to put it in context, they were giving fake names. But they were the most obscene, I can't read them here, the most obscene names you could think of. And years later, this guy who wrote this book about it came and asked me, he said, how comes this there? And, and you have to understand, you know, Indian people, under the greatest stress, and they're having, they're just giving up all their guns and their, their, their horses and everything, they're stressed really bad. You know what they resort to? Humor. So, one guy says something like, you know, what's your name? And he says, Bunchhead. You know, so the next guy says something worse and worse, and they start laughing. And this is how they're dealing with this stress. So that's, you know, that's, I always thought that was interesting. The Indian people would deal with stress, with humor. Um, they're kept at Fort Robinson until late December. Um, they're allowed to, do, to, to, to roam around where women were stealing corn from the military and hiding it in barracks. And they were preparing to, to, for something. When the military came and said to them, you are going back. You are going back to Oklahoma. What was the Cheyenne response? You can go to hell. You can kill me. I'm not going back. I'll kill myself before I go back. It's not going to happen. The Cheyenne warriors were the toughest, smartest, best military of all Indian. And you talk about Geronimo, and you can talk about Crazy Horse, but the Cheyenne dog soldiers were the biggest threat to anybody, any other tribe, because they were they were diehard warriors. I mean, they, they knew how to survive. Um, they eat anything. They didn't they did make it work. So, they, on, on January 1st, they told the Cheyennes, you're going to Oklahoma. And they picked out the leaders. At first they took her, you, come with us. And the Red Jacket, you're getting here. They handcuffed them, the two leaders. They put them in the prison next to the barracks. And they went after the head man, his name was Dolan. And he was in among the people, and the people wouldn't let him take him. They were going to preserve their leader. They were thinking about how they're going to survive with their leader. So they protected him. On January 9th, two days ago, was it two days ago, three, four days ago? I was up there at Fort Robinson for the memorial. And these kids your age, 110 of them, left that night the night of the outbreak, and started running back to Montana, symbolically representing the people who were 
had, had ran from Oklahoma, had come from Oklahoma to seek freedom, only wanting to go home. My great-grandmother escapes, and as she's running to the river with her grandmother, her grandmother shot. And as she goes down, she says, you saw which way they went, follow them. And almost all the Cheyennes went up the river. But for some reason, my great-grandmother saw somebody that was going down the river, and she followed them. You can see the, uh, if you ever get a chance to take a look at these maps, you can see the retreat routes that the different people took. What happened was that there was a plan to save the leader, Dolan. You're not going to read about this in any history books. This is not in the history books because they don't know these stories. They saved Dolan by taking him downstream when everybody else went upstream. There was a camp of soldiers, a camp of Lakota warriors, scouts, and Cheyenne scouts. There was an Indian woman who was married to a, a, a guy who had a cabin in his name was Arkansas, John Sawyer, and they hid these people. My great-grandmother just happened to stumble in with them, and she survived. They took her to Pine Ridge about 70 miles away. A few days later, you know, a couple weeks later, they hid them, and they stayed on the reservation, hidden out there, until later on, the federal government recognized that what it had done to the Cheyenne people was wrong, and they decided to let them stay. But this is only after half of the 300 people, 150 people that went with Dona, over half of them were killed. Most of them were women and children. They're buried in a mass grave at Fort Robinson. There's another mass grave above Fort Robinson. But my great-grandmother was lucky in some ways. She survived that. Now that's personal history. That's the stuff that you're not, you're not gonna read about this in the history books. Partly because the Cheyenne people don't talk about this stuff. They don't tell stories like this. I, I have this all written out, but I've never published it because the elders asked me not to. So her next, next adventure is they put him on the reservation in Pine Ridge, and then it becomes the time, the era of the boarding schools. 1883, they opened the Genoa boarding school. Uh, my grandmother at that time would have been about 14 years old, probably your age. And what did they do to her? This is what they do here. Makote Uso Mechitero. Shika! Ah, Yoko! They rubbed soap in her mouth because she wouldn't talk. They cut her hair. They made fun of her. And then when she did, she was a strong woman, she wasn't going to cower to nobody. She's a Cheyenne woman, she was a fighter. Many of our Cheyenne women were warriors. They fought just like the men. And when she refused again, that teacher took soap, live soap that had this acid in it and rubbed it in her eyes and destroyed her eyes. She came home blind and she was blind the rest of her life. This, that's a sad story, but she survived. If you go to Genoa, Nebraska now, or you go to any of these boarding schools, you're going to see these huge cemeteries. More markers than there are seats in this auditorium where children were brutally killed and murdered and trying to force them to be white people. That's the reality of some history. That's the reality of boarding schools. 
Now later on, they did change. They got better. When my grandmother went to, to the same boarding school, 20 years later, she had a good experience and she got a good education. And because she got a good education, I got a good education. So I think you know there's a tremendous amount of value in education. I encourage you guys to, to have it. When I was little, we had nothing. We were poor. I remember three weeks we went with nothing but bread and water. Bread cooked on top, gabugu bread cooked on top to soul. Water, sometimes coffee, but it was watered down so much you could barely taste it was even coffee. I remember having a stomach pain and my stomach hurt so bad because we didn't have anything to eat. But we survived. And part of the reason that I'm here is because I got a good education. And I think that's important. I want you to always remember that. But also remember your ancestors. Know who you are. Where are you from? What's that family tree look like? What was, do you know your great great grandparents? You know who they are? You know where they're buried? Do you? We need, you should know that. That's, what, that, that's the heart of who we are as a people. You know, when we, uh, when we think about these things, you know, our people were challenged to survive. First of all, we destroyed our economy, the Buffalo, and then we recovered. And we, were, we, we were on the Pioneer Reservation. Our family had four, we took care of 400 head of horses to the tribe, and 200, um, 400 head of cattle. My grandmother, not my great-grandmother, my grandmother, was seven years old and she had 200 head of horses. We were well off. We'd gone through that poverty and we recovered. And you know what the government did? They passed the Allotment Act, 1887, and they came out and they took all the land which was not farmable and they said, you're gonna become farmers. And they sold all those cattle and they sold all those horses. And that spring they came back and they had a mule, a plow, and a sack of seeds. This is going to be farmers. No way, that land, you can't farm it. It destroyed us as a people, economically. It changed our life forever. We've been living, you know, you talk about poverty, go to pioneers. 80% unemployment. Not 8%, 80%. You know, 18, 20 people living in one house. That's the reality for our reservation. You know, so I think that it's important to, what, what did I, what should I, should I cover? Okay, so, so here's the important piece of this. Um, at the Battle of Little Big Horn, one of the things that happened was right immediately after the battle, Kids, young men and women ran out of the back. You know, this battle was stretched out for a long ways. Kids are running, boys are picking up guns and ammunition, girls are just picking up stuff. And my grandmother, the great grandmother said, these guys all had belts on and they would run and they would take these belts and they'd take this stuff and they'd throw it up in the air, this paper, and they'd throw it up in the air. And what it was was money. Um, and 
When I told this story at a historical conference in Billings, Montana, a guy by the name of Robert Eckley was a prominent historian said, oh, those are cute little historical stories. You know, that old tradition is good, but that's not true. How would he know? He wasn't there. How could he possibly know? How could he even comment like that? So, but it made me mad. So I went back and I found out why it was there. I went to Fort Lincoln in North Dakota where they got money, uh, riverboat, and looked at the post returns. All the forts did a monthly report called the post returns. And in the post return for that month, Custer withdrew two months' pay for his men. I have a copy of that post return in my documents to prove that that happened. Sometimes you have to have, because they don't believe the oral stories. Sometimes you have to be able to document. I had to do the same thing with this, with my grandmother when she escaped and went the other direction. Historians, you're not going to see that story anywhere except capsules of it. And, and the historians told me that did not happen. Those people did not go that way. There's no evidence of it. You're just making this stuff up. I'm not a liar. My great-grandmother, why would she lie? That's not, you know, that's not who we were. So in 2004, I found this document, and eventually it got published in a book called The Ricker Tablets. There's two volumes. And there's a story in there about how, um, primary source now, so I'm off the book now. Um, the night of the fight, an Indian and two women came to Arkansas John Sawyer's cabin, and, and he kept them there in concealment for three or four days, and then took them to Pine Ridge. So in this little sentence right here, I was vindicated, because somebody else told the story. And it was in writing, and it was in a historical document. So now all of a sudden, I look like a genius. And before, I was being, people were very critical of what I said and, and told the stories. Um, Time-wise. 18 minutes. Let me um, give you an opportunity to ask some questions. Anybody got any good questions? I know, I know some of you are supposed to have thought about this over the weekend and prepared. And go ahead and get out your notes and I'll... Uh, nobody has notes? When I was younger, I grew up in a little town called Crawford, Nebraska, right outside of Fort Robinson. We moved there because my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather's body was never found. And his daughter moved there in 1910 to look for that, look for her, her grandfather. They never found him. The town that I grew up in was a border town. Um, when I started school, there were 45 kids in the kindergarten class, 15 of them were Indians. By the time I got to eighth grade, I was the only one left. Everybody else had been pushed out of school, dropped out of school. Discrimination was a real issue in border towns. Um, oftentimes, I had to fight my way home. I wasn't necessarily always smart, but I had to be tough to get by. The only thing that got me through school during those periods of time, because I was a good athlete. I was one of the best athletes in the Got offered football scholarships to Nebraska, 
Fort Lewis, Durango, uh, Gunnison, Western State, Chagrin State, Carney State, because I was a good athlete. Because I was a good athlete and I wasn't afraid to fight, they started leaving me alone. And I, but it didn't happen until I was a freshman in high school when I beat up the senior who was supposed to be the star of the football team. But remember, I grew up fighting. You know, I was just part of our way of life. And he knocked me down and gave me a great big black eye. I could barely get up and I wouldn't give up. And that scared me. Because I'm Cheyenne. We don't give up. We never give up. We never give up. We'll die first. That's why we're good warriors. Good question. So, not to interrupt, but rather interject some of my experiences working with families in Denver Public Schools. This definitely speaks to me what Rick just talked about in terms of having to fight to defend himself physically um, because he was bullied because of his culture. And about how our culture sometimes really puts a lot of value on being a warrior and fighting for yourself. And that's how we've been able to be so resilient is that we've had to stick up for ourselves fiercely. But how does that jive with the school system expectations that not only the perpetrator, but someone who's physically defending themselves could both end up with in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, um, write-ups on their behavior report in an infinite campus. And going back and, you know, explaining those cultural norms to the school system, but also going back to the families and being empathetic that you do understand this is the way um, certain families were brought up, and it doesn't make you um, a coward if you use other steps first, because like I said, that's the expectation of the school that you would use your words first and seek help from a trusted adult before retaliating physically. So anyway, that is has just been one of my experiences bridging that cultural gap. The next question by the audience was my favorite question of the day. Student Rico asked about how Native Americans can be so patriotic. So many of us serve in the armed forces and have so much pride in our country when we are disrespected at every turn. In fact, our sacred Black Hills are carved with the faces of white presidents and he also brought up the situation at Standing Rock and how our people were fired upon by water cannons and sound grenades. And yet we are so fiercely patriotic. And he was very curious about that. So I do appreciate that question, Rico. Very good question. Um, let's start with the faces in the Black Hills. Just because they are honored by people in America doesn't necessarily believe. We don't believe that we can honor. We call it the shine of hypocrisy. Um, 
And the reason is, is because we, didn't, we haven't forgotten. Those black hills were illegally taken from us. The Supreme Court said the rightest, rankest case of dishonor in the history of the United States. The Supreme Court said that about them taking our black hills. And then they put these faces in there. And you know what? There's a lot, a lot of Indian people that support Crazy Horse Monument either. Crazy Horse would never, never allow that to happen. He wasn't that kind of man. He wasn't that kind of person to put his face up there, put his head up there. So there's a lot of his relatives that don't support that. I don't support it. I don't believe that you know, that's what should be done. That's a sacred ground. That was a sacred mountain. We've had, we've had trouble constantly dealing with having our kids to have their hair cut when they wore their hair in traditional manners, continuing to have trouble with kids who speak the language, and yet we know that it's important for us to hold on to those things. It's important to the diversity of the world for us to hold on to those things. It's important for the diversity of the diversity of the world to have an Indian point of view, because our point of view is different. And part of it is because, again, it's the people who are looking at you, describing you, interacting with you. They don't understand that genius. They don't see that genius. Because you did think differently. We always had a lot of, time, a lot of difficult time in school. Partly because it was a different world, a different language, a different perspective. You know, we see the earth as sacred. It's a sacred place. We see Mother Earth as a living being. And we understand at the microscopic level, at the atom level, there's little worlds that are going on. Just like there is in the universe, in the rest of the universe. You understand those kinds of things. We used to travel by the stars. And would, every year we'd make a trip around through the Black Hills to celebrate who we were. That was our sacred group. So, I know a lot about history, I know a lot about culture, I know a lot about, I don't talk much about our religion, because it's, it's, you know, it's private. Any other, next question? Yes? Mm -hmm. Okay, so she's asking a very interesting political legal question about um, the status of reservations and then prior to reservations. Indian people, different Indian people, and I'm going to speak about the Ogallas, we operated from a position of power because the military, we demanded the military remove themselves from our land before we signed a treaty with them. The 1868 treaty, they withdrew. We considered ourselves completely sovereign. We weren't dependent upon the United States government for anything. When we got put onto the reservations, now think about this because this is a very important piece. The Indian people don't own the land. The federal government does. It's held in trust by the federal, so it's reserved like a military reservation. It's held in trust. So that's kind of a different, so we're quasi-sovereign, dependent nations today. We still call ourselves nations. We still operate, try to operate as nations. And we still, in, in many places, we still have traditional forms of government that operate, but are not part of the surface government. Um, there's lots of policies to try the Indian Citizenship Act. We were made citizens in 1924. And in 1934, they reorganized our government um, and basically took our traditional way um, and left us to 
uh, have a corporate form of government, which really hasn't worked very well, it's continued to, to lead us to problems. A sign. Thank you for being accepted. As proud as I am of my dad and my mom and people of their generation who work so hard to reclaim our culture and our rights, I am equally inspired by the next generation. And so I really hope you tune into our next episode with our student voices from Denver Public Schools Native American Student Support Program. Thank you for listening. You,